mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com In June of 2017, just after news broke of the tragic fire at Grenfell Tower, the writer Ben Oakry got an unusual phone call. Ben is a novelist and poet. In 1991, he became the first Black African writer to win a Booker Prize for his novel The Famished Road. And the unusual call was from my boss, Alec Russell, the editor of FD Weekend and all of our Life and Arts coverage. Alec wanted to know if Ben would write something responding to the fire, which was devastating. And you just went home and you wrote this extraordinary poem in the night. Yeah, but you're slightly playing down your role here because I'd been worried about it, didn't know what to do about it. It was eating me up. And then you called and then you said, Ben O'Cree, you did this great editor thing. You said, Ben O'Cree, the world wants to hear your response to this tragedy. And it was like another charge from from above. It was extraordinary. That's Alec and Ben chatting in our studio last week. They stopped by on Alec's very last day as editor of FD Weekend. That Grenfell Tower poem took flight. It represented how many people in Britain felt. It was read out during the Labour Party's conference that year, which determines the party's platform. Millions of people tuned into it on Britain's Channel 4. And we're starting with Alec and Ben today because it's actually pretty unusual for fiction writers and nonfiction outlets to work together this closely. I felt the weight of that responsibility that you very kindly and very wisely uh, gave me because if you had not asked me to do it, I would have written something, but it would have been of a very different kind. It would have been more private, possibly even smaller. But the minute you said that you set me on a path to a kind of a, a new kind of public poetry. So I thank you very much for, for that great gift of the editor's spirit. Alec and Ben have worked together on a number of projects since then. Most recently in Alec's last issue as editor, which was dedicated to art and culture in Africa. Today, we bring you their conversation, which is about what fiction and nonfiction have to teach each other. Then, my colleague Miles Ellingham comes on to introduce us to one of the biggest graffiti writers today. His name is Tenfoot. This is FT Weekend. I'm Lila Raptopoulos. Grenfell Tower, June 2017. It was like a burnt matchbox in the sky. It was black and long and burnt in the sky. You saw it through the flowering stump of trees. You saw it beyond the ochre spire of the church. You saw it in the tears of those who survived. You saw it through the rage of those who survived. You saw it past the posters of those who were... You're listening to a recording of Ben reading that poem he ended up writing on Alec's request. This video is almost 14 minutes long. In print, the poem spread across two full pages of the newspaper, in very, very small font. Grenfell Tower was a moment of reckoning in Britain. 
The tower was part of the public housing system, and the people who died in the fire were mostly low-income and not white. For years, residents had complained about fire safety in that tower and were ignored. And so Grenfell became a symbol of Britain not taking care of its most vulnerable. When I came in on that Monday morning, I said, we have to do something totally different. This is just such a shocking, shocking thing that has happened. Was it difficult to argue it? No, well, I didn't. I guess being being the senior editor, I didn't. Uh, I mean, ultimately, no. But of course, you want you want the support and and belief of your colleagues. And no, I think everyone thought, oh my goodness, this is just this is what we should be doing. We should scrap all the plans that we had. Uh, I mean, it was a long poem. It took up columns and columns of pages. <laughs> I've never seen anything like it. I mean, um, How do you find such a space in a newspaper? You just have to can a lot of stuff and you have to ring up lots of people and tell them, I'm really sorry, but you know all that love and affection I've showered on you for this piece you've written. (laughs) What I meant to say was, we're going to run it next weekend and not this weekend. (laughs) No, I think that was the start of it, actually. That was, we'd met a few times before. And then we had a long conversation after I sent the piece into you, uh, sent sent you the piece and you'd read it. We We had a steamy conversation about you know, what 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 we're going to do about certain lines. And yeah, you yeah. accused me of censoring it. I was saying, Ben, <laughs> I want to publish this, but I have to be able to publish it <laughs> I, without losing my job and losing the empty lots of subscribers. It's got to work for both of us. And you were very kind. You understood that that, this, that, that ultimately it was important to get it published. And uh, uh, I don't think I censored that much. I, I just took out one or two of the references to one, the revolution. One, one, <laughs> and But you know, the funny thing is that the way poetry works you took out the references to revolution but the references to revolution are still in the poem yes but indirectly exactly and much more powerfully for that yeah exactly yeah. and yes I, did, I can't tell you the effect of it um, the way it was spread around to people the way it was quoted I had people writing to me calling me up saying I, I could never in my wildest dream have thought that the FT would would do something so incendiary. They, they'd never been able to put the two things together in their minds. That was, that was for me, very fascinating. Very fascinating, because I think it's much more powerful coming from, from where you least expected it. And I think that was the... Yes, I think that's interesting. Yeah. Ben loved working with Alec, so they kept going. And over the last six years, Ben has written about all sorts of things, about racism, about a 4,000-year-old Egyptian poem, and a lot more. I've put links to some of my favorite pieces of his in the show notes. Ben was also eager to help Alex's last project as editor of FT Weekend, last week's Africa edition. Alex spent years reporting in countries across the continent, and he wrote a definitive book about post-apartheid South Africa. So it was a natural choice for another collaboration, which includes an essay from Ben. And as the issue went to print, Ben asked Alec to reflect on his seven years in the role. I'm just fascinated by this seven years. Mm. What interests me here is to see how you have, as, as it were, brought more of the cultural dimension into journalism while bringing more of journalism into the cultural dimension. Um, was, this, was this something you always uh, were fascinated 
fascinated by this these two spheres of life because they intersect but they are quite different the one, two cultures yes yes two cultures because one responds to the world immediately and the other responds to it more in its own way much more richly but more indirectly more imaginatively um more subconsciously well i think i've had uh, to learn actually i've had to learn and and also from our arts editor and our and our books editor i've had to learn sometimes when to take the foot off the gas and in fact we've got some stunning beautiful thoughtful clever writing celebrating the arts in africa now that is the more reflective school of of writing it's not you know there's no particular reason we've done that this week we've yeah. just done it because it's important and rather wonderful but you see i i think it's i think it is also it's, it is reflective but i think it is also immediate because of the two ways in which uh journalism um tends to reflect africa one which is that uh, you know it writes about africa when the disasters coups tragedies troubles uh, not enough about what is beautiful in africa not enough about its achievements mm. its creativity its joys its surprises its 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 playfulness and i think both of them are news i think both of them are real both of them are immediate but we only tend to get the one side and what is wonderful about what you've done on your last issue and i want to ask you about why you have chosen this is to celebrate africa i wanted to end with a statement and i wanted to to remind our readers that we are a truly global publication and i i suppose one thing in my mind was that i have worked in different parts of africa in my journalistic past and uh, had always felt that there were these great creative forces that that sometimes were briefly uh focused on but 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 too often weren't but i did need my conversation with you about a month or so ago and your enthusiasm and support for me to think okay let's do it and then the next day i was in the office and i got all the editors together and said i've got this idea for a month's time can we make it happen and they all said for you your last edition okay and and off went this <laughs> blizzard of commissions and <laughs> photographers traveling around the continent and i thought this is very that's, special that's, that is very special that is spe- special as the conversation wound down ben and alex started reflecting on the other's media what has fiction taught Alec and nonfiction taught Ben? So one of the wonderful things that uh, has happened to me, Ben, in my years as the Safety Weekend editor is that I've read less and less nonfiction and more and more fiction. Oh, and wow. it's not that I didn't read fiction before. I did. But I have to say, I regarded it as a bit of an extravagance, a bit of an indulgence, that, that the job of a journalist was to be immersed in the big in issues facts. of the time and in, in facts. facts and in understanding more and more about them so if you're working in country x or country y you read every non-fiction book that comes about it uh and on it goes and of course there's always more coming out because there's always more big stuff that needs analyzing i have pretty much totally flipped in the last seven years and now very seldom read non-fiction it's got to be 
really quite a special non-fiction work for me to read it. And it's either about something that I just know nothing about. I think I really should know about it. And and I've turned to novelists and I, why? I tend to keep doing so. But why? What have you discovered? Well, apart from if you pick the right novels, obviously the magic, the upliftment, uh, the reflectiveness, the understanding of humanity and the understanding of the sort of timelessness of humanity's choices and 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 predicament um i think that's probably the main the main thing that's very that's very interesting that's very interesting on the other hand i i I've, I've, I've always found i mean i trained as a journalist uh, as a young man in lagos i i was always going to be and thought i was going to spend my life as a, as a, as a journalist um because I was fascinated by the by, by the things of this world, I began reporting on things going wrong in my neighborhood. Water tanks that were, you know, that had lizards in them that mm. people drank and they fell ill. I just, you know, I was fascinated by the facts, the things. At the same time as I was learning to write, and I f- I find journalism um, very fertile for the imagination. I think the trouble with most of us novelists is that we could have an idea. And we could wander off into that idea. Um, but when you come up against the hard facts of the world, the imagination is never more empowered. And so I can see very much how Tolstoy was reading a newspaper one day, read the story of a woman who threw herself in front of a train, and the whole of Russia, the whole of Russia, its countryside, the, the beating heart of that great, enormous country just came rushing out of that single piece of newsprint, that single fact in a newspaper. The whole world was behind it when he imagined it, when he tried to make sense of it. That's what fascinates me, that a, that a fact can contain behind it a whole world. I'm certainly not, to be clear, renouncing an interest in facts I know, or just, journalism. No. I think it's just that after some years now in in journalism and being schooled in this way of thinking where you're trying you are trying to understand everyone and while you're not looking for a false equivalence that's a disastrous route to go down but you are trying to understand uh, all sides of an argument or or whatever i th- i find it just all the more refreshing to escape into the freedom yeah. Uh, of fiction, I don't. I don't know if you call it the freedom. I call it the rigor of of, of fiction, because to make up a world um, requires really precise edges, and the relationship between imagination and fact. Between, I mean, to understand, uh, you, you, you talk about journalism and giving us the, the, an understanding of the world, but you know, there's two kinds of understanding. There's understanding um, how things happened. But, you know, why they happened and the emotional dimensions of why they happened is fascinating. A lot of things that happen in this world can sometimes, sometimes decisions are made by leaders not because they were necessary, but because they had a, a stomach upset that day. Um, how fascinating is that? That what seems so tangential can also be so powerful in the world. Ben, I want to close by asking you about something I I read actually just earlier today, and it was about the future of the arts, addressing uh, what has been discussed a bit in recent months, the massive recent decline in the numbers of people studying the arts, uh, uh, in particular English literature, 
And the, the, the article was sort of asking the question, well, should we care about this? And I just wanted to ask what you thought. I, well, I, think, it's, I think it's the beginning of um, a cultural tragedy. It's the beginning of the sowing of deserts in the heart and the spirit of a people, um, which we have to and we must reverse for, for one very simple reason. People think that the art, or that art is not, is not functional. It's not like engineering or, or law or medicine. And I say, well, you're wrong. The art is profoundly functional, like medicine <laughs> and like engineering. Um, and it's functional on a very different level and, a, and on a higher plane for the health, the mental, spiritual, and psychological health uh, of, of a nation. The art, literature, dance, music, painting, give us an image of who we are right now. Uh, they give us an image of who we were. They give us an image of who we can be. Nothing else does it. It is the particular remit of art to deal with what is most profoundly human about us, what is most profoundly possible about our humanity. Um, even apart from that, the very fact that the art is um, deeply related to the, the, the spirit of a people, who they are, um, that is related to the imagination, uh, that is related to playfulness, that is related to the, the, the release from trauma, only the arts and only artists and writers and poets and dancers and so on have the freedom to draw our attention to these things. And we, we diminish the art at the cost of diminishing the spirit of the nation. It, this cannot be said strongly enough. Yeah, I, th I think it has to be resisted. And um, I hope that you uh, help to resist it whatever you do in your future capacity. Well, I will. And, and I, actually, I was thinking as I was listening to you just then, I was thinking if anyone ever asked me, so what is the, the foundational spirit of the FT Weekend? I'll just send them that little clip of you just now and say that's, that's what it's about. Ben, thank you. Thank you for all our collaborations. There will be more under different guises, uh, but also thank you for this conversation. Oh, thank you. Alec has been a true champion of us here at the FT Weekend Podcast. The show just wouldn't exist as it is without him, and we'll miss him. The good news is he's moving on to be the FT's foreign editor, so we will find a way to have him on again. I've put links to all the pieces mentioned from this celebratory final special in the show notes. My colleague Miles Ellingham lives in London, and he's recently started noticing the graffiti that scrawled across his city in a totally different way. I used to listen to music on the top deck of the bus. I don't do that anymore. I just look out the window. There's this sort of amazing canopy of, you know, these like weird little hidden beefs and conflicts all around the city with people trying to outdo each other. And once you start to recognize them, it becomes quite addictive. I can see why people really like it. He notices all of this because he spent about nine months on and off with a graffiti writer. His name is Tenfoot. And he's one of the most famous graffiti writers in London today. 
You may have seen 10 Foot's tag. It mostly just says the words 10 Foot. And it's on buildings and bridges and trains, not just in London, but in cities around the world. Once you see it, you kind of can't unsee it. And for people who are part of this subculture that know a lot about graffiti, 10 Foot is revered. Miles has some friends in that world and they love him. It's a bit like they talk about graffiti writers like West Country farmers talk about their sheep. <laughs> and, and it's sort of like 10 Foot is this sort of, the way they talk about this man, this man who's been everywhere, tagged everywhere. There's a thing in graffiti where if you if you get your name out a lot, it's, it's called being up. And he's he's by far the most sort of up person that they would talk about. Ten Foot is both up and also entirely anonymous, which makes Miles' time with him even more interesting. So I asked him to tell us about it. Miles, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Hi, it's great to be here. So you recently wrote a magazine cover story that we loved. It was a profile of London's most prolific graffiti writer named Tenfoot. And to start, I'm curious just what interested you in graffiti. Did you have a personal interest? Yeah, I mean, when I was, when I was, I, I, I'm, I'm not close to this subculture. I'm not pro-graffiti as well, despite what some of our commenters will say. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, I... I've, I've, you're always dimly aware of it, right, in the city because it's sort of ubiquitous. And it's also used in sort of high-end consumerism in hip-hop album covers and buying trainers and, you know, go to Urban Outfitters, you'll see it all over the walls. Yeah. But very little is actually known about the people that produce it. And the more I started getting an insight into this sort of weird, hidden subculture where people take this extremely seriously and, you know, can sometimes die doing it, mm-hmm. um, the more I was sort of became fascinated. I also just want to distinguish, there's a difference, right, between street art and graffiti writing. Like, this isn't Banksy. Yeah. So, And I'm curious if you can help me describe the difference. That's a good question. Um, oh Being the mouthpiece for this really, <laughs> like, really in, important question at the heart of the whole thing is, is, is tough. But mm. I said, something Tenfoot said to me is he said that the main difference is that while street artists add value to assets or property, things like that, graphers or graffiti writers or taggers take it away. Right. Um, there's a there's a phrase that sort of uh, graffiti writers use to say called doing damage, which means to get your name up. You've mm-hmm. you know, done damage, which sort of shows how they're sort of approaching this. And there's a whole lot of things that go with that you know if it's if it's legal it's not really graffiti there's even purists who might you know say that you have to steal all your equipment if you're a real graffiti writer right in the piece you uh bring us with you while you go with him while he steals spray paint from a local store and then goes (laughs) tagging and then you know you went to a poetry reading of his you you know you were like kind of watching him go up on the rails like can you tell me how you felt yeah. traveling around London with him? I've never been on the UK track sides because if I did, that would have been a tr- crime. Mm-hmm. But if I if I if I was to have gone on the track sides with Tenfoot, what I probably would tell you is that they're this amazing sort of liminal, weird void space 
where these sort of ruled by these sort of big mechanical whales that go through the city and you have to sort of jump out the way and avoid but it's also incredibly dangerous um, because it's just this place full of just these hidden hidden wonders and hidden terrible dangers that can you know can kill you the, the train tracks can redirect while you're walking down them and your foot can get trapped if mm. you don't free it you know you'll 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 lose it yeah Miles, I'm going to ask you a question that's pretty simplistic, but purposefully so. What What is the point of it? <laughs> like, why would someone want to tag things, especially if they're not considering it art? Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know <laughs> if they know why they do it. Yeah. Some people will say that they do. Some people will come up with these sort of high-minded political reasonings behind what they do. Some people will talk about private property and how it's a commentary on that Mm -hmm. you know i think that's you know silly i think genuinely think a lot of them are just addicted to doing it yeah um whether that makes it worse uh, you know i don't know and it's not something that people do maliciously i mean the i must say graffiti writers are a broad tent you know um you some of them are sort of the types of people you might refer to as sort of quote-unquote you know wrong-uns mm-hmm. but some of them are you know people like vamp who is this very prestigious grapher who was a, turned out to be a 40-something account manager who worked in the city and had a family so <laughs> i think what unites them though is this sort of sense of risk and with inherent to that sense of risk is a sort of adrenaline high that you get from risking anything. I think there's an element of addiction in there. Or habit. Miles thinks that the other thing most taggers seem to have in common is that they really love their cities and they really love their city's trains. They know the rails. I remember walking with Tenfoot through Waterloo. I remember he once suddenly sort of his his eyes changed and he said, um, I'll come with me. And we, we sort of ducked down this side street and got to this little fence and climbed over the fence and then sort of walked along to this little grate and we were sort of standing on top of this grate looking down. Couldn't quite see what he was pointing at and he just said, look, look there, it's a sleeping train. And we sort of looked <laughs> down and there was, this, there was this tube train sort of, he was right, asleep. And he was like, oh, you can't go in there, but I just come here to look at the sleeping train. And, and wow. there was something really tender and intimate about how he felt about this sort of, an intense amount of anthropomorphization, I think, goes on between graffiti writers and, and the trains themselves. Yeah. You won't be surprised to hear that the enemy of the graffiti writer is the cops. You also met with people on the other side of the brick wall, the British Transport Police, and it's their job to intercept graffiti writers like Ten Foot and arrest them. And I'm curious what their perspective is. Like, I mean, it might be an obvious question, but why is it a problem to have people tagging stuff? Yeah, I mean, what what they'll tell you, quite rightly, is that, it, you know, it costs a lot of money to clean this stuff up. Um, yeah. You know, that's a, that's a big part of it. It's hard to pin down exactly how much graffiti removal costs London, but according to the London Assembly reports, it's around £100 million a year. The argument isn't just about money, though. If you're a train driver, you you know you accidentally run over a graffiti writer. That's gonna be that's gonna be really traumatic. And you know, some some graphers um, you know write with acid on the side of windows so that it sort of etches into the window. And there's 
I was told by the representative from the British Transport Police um, that that can, you know, rub off on the hands of cleaners and then they can get burns from that. You know, it's and it's sort of also, I think graffiti is a strange one because unlike other subcultures like skateboarding or breakdancing, it's sort of harbored this illicit psychic feeling about it part of their argument was you know it doesn't it doesn't look nice it makes a place look degraded it's sort of uh twinned in the minds of most uh people with sort of antisocial behavior and criminality yeah you know i really loved your piece miles um not only because it was beautifully written and and a love letter to london but because it made me love my city too like it, it it made me love new york and it, it i think a lot about um institutions and what makes something or someone an institution of of a city and this piece reminded me that like institutions aren't just restaurants <laughs> you know they're also mm. like like things you don't realize exist around you the whole time the question it left me with is who does the city belong to um, and I'd love to hear you reflect on that question a little bit, especially after writing the piece and digesting it and having it out in the world. Like, who do you think a city belongs to? And and has your opinion changed on that? I don't know who London belongs to, apart from the people who live in London. Um, I think at the heart of what Tenfoot does is a sort of critique about private property and things like that. I think there was there was a sort of interesting thing that, um, when the piece came out, it was met with a lot of people who were really angry about it, who had this sort of anxiety about Temfer tagging their stuff, mm-hmm. which I thought was quite interesting because my main critique of graffiti is that the community doesn't choose to have their playgrounds or whatever graffitied mm-hmm. it's not something it's not a democratic thing there's there is a sort of tenant in in britain that you you don't mess with with private property but i i did find there was a certain there was a certain sort of like funny sort of freudian projection of like oh if temper ever comes to my house and sleeps <laughs> with my wife i mean tags on my walls <laughs> i did think was sort of interesting i did not that that's an unwarranted anxiety i you know i wouldn't like it if someone drew on my house but I, but that's yeah. not what i was depicting you know that's that's interesting miles because um <laughs> because what it sounds like you're saying is like the city belongs to of course the people that like we know it belongs to and, and it belongs to city government and the police and whatever and then there's people like these taggers who who are doing something in some ways countercultural in that they're like, no, the city belongs to us. And then there's <laughs> the community of people who are like, no, the city belongs to us. We don't want this either. <laughs> mm, 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 um, and so there's this tension of, I mean, I guess the city just belongs to all of them and, and all of all we're all trying to do is cohabitate. Yeah. Well, I, I suppose what is amazing about graffiti writers is they go to such dangerous lengths to, to do this thing that gets them no fame. Right. No money. Right. I mean, I don't, I don't risk anything to live in a city or to make my mark on it. Really. They do. And I, I think I th- in some way, some part of me thinks that's commendable. But also, mm-hmm. I, um, you know, I understand people's anxiety about it and why people don't want it. And that makes sense too. Yeah. Miles, thank you so much. No, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you. 
That's the show this week. Thank you for listening to FT Weekend, the podcast from the Financial Times. There are links to everything mentioned today in the show notes, alongside a link to a special discount for an FT subscription that is also at ft.com slash weekend podcast. I always find you the best deals. I've also put a discount link in there for the second annual US FT Weekend Festival, which is on Saturday, May 20th in Washington, D.C. It is quite a lineup. We love hearing from you. You can email us at ftweekendpodcast at ft.com. The show is on Twitter at ftweekendpod. And I am on Instagram and Twitter at Lila Rapp. I post a lot about the show on my Instagram. Also, if you really love the show this week, leave us a review. I know every podcast says that, but it really helps. I'm Lila Raptopoulos, and here is my talented team. Katya Kamkova is our senior producer. Lulu Smith is our producer. Molly Nugent is our contributing producer. Our sound engineers are Breen Turner and Sam Javinko, with original music by Metaphor Music. Topher Forges is our executive producer. Our global head of audio is Cheryl Brumley. And a very, very special thank you to Alec Russell. Have a wonderful weekend, and we'll find each other again next week. 